You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There's the parenting life of our fantasies, and there's the parenting life of our banal, on-the-ground realities. Right now, there's little question which one Angelina Holder is living. Eli, her three-year-old son, has just announced that he's wet his shorts. Okay, says Angie, barely looking up. She's on a schedule, making shake-and-bake chicken parmesan for lunch. Her evening shift at the hospital starts at 3 p.m. Go upstairs and change. Eli is standing on a chair in the kitchen, picking at blackberries. I can't. Why not? I can't. I think you can. You're a big boy. I can't. Angie unpeels the oven mitt from her hand. What is Mommy doing? Changing me. No, I'm cooking, so we're in a pickle. Eli starts to whimper. Angie stops what she's doing. She looks annoyed, amused, and above all, baffled. There must be protocols for how to handle this kind of farcical exchange in parenting books. But she doesn't have time for books right now. She's got lunch to make, dishes to wash, and nursing scrubs to throw on. Why can't you just change yourself, she asks. I want to hear this reasoning of yours. I can't. Angie stares at her son. I can see her making the rapid calculation all parents make at this stage in a cage match with a child, trying to determine whether it pays to relent. Eli is indeed capable of changing his own clothes, and unlike most three-year-olds, he usually succeeds on his first try, with his shirt facing forward and one limb in each pant leg. She could, in theory, hold her ground. Maybe you could go upstairs and get me new clothes for you to change into, she says, after mulling it over. Maybe you can find me some new green underwear. In your underwear bin? From an adult's perspective, this deal has all of the face-saving elements of a good compromise. It's win-win. But Eli, being three, is not taking yes for an answer. Stalling, he wanders over to Angie's knapsack. I think Zay wants this, he says, fishing out a granola bar. Zay, short for Xavier, is his younger brother. No, he doesn't. Angie is firm, is calm, but firm. She's picked a lane, and she's staying in it. I need you to do what I ask. You're not listening right now. Eli keeps sifting through the bag. Angie walks over and points him down the stairs. I need help, protests Eli. No, you don't, she answers. I put all of your clothes where they're supposed to be. Go upstairs and get them. A suspenseful couple of seconds tick by. Brinksmanship with a three-year-old. She looks conspiratorially at Zay. Your brother's being silly, isn't he? What are we going to do with him? Eli huffs but capitulates, slowly making the climb to his room. A minute or two later, he appears at the top of the staircase, naked as Cupid, and tosses down a pair of clean green underwear. You did find your green underwear, Angie exclaims. Good job. She beams and pounces on it, as if it were a bridal bouquet. Jennifer Sr. is a contributing editor at New York Magazine. She won the Front Page Award from the News Women's Club of New York in 1999 and 2014, the GLAAD Award in 2002, and the Erickson Prize in Mental Health Media in 2011. Her new book is All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. That was fun. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that as I read this book, it occurred to me we're in a really interesting period for science, social science, and writing about social science. And when I was thinking as I read this book was that the typical scientist is the way we understand science is you make a hypothesis, you do an experiment, you test the experimental results against what the hypothesis projects and say it, the hypothesis is either correct or not correct. What I felt like you were doing in this book was that your, you made your hypothesis. The experiment was the writing of the book itself, the creation of the book itself. And this is a kind of a science as a prose experiment. And I think that's a really interesting approach to science, to social science. That is a lovely thing to say. 
may I just repeat that everywhere? That is <laughs> just a massive compliment. Um, I sort of use writing to think, so it does make a lot of sense. And I think if you ask a lot of writers, they will tell you that, that they're not sure what they've got sorted out until it's on the page and rewritten and rewritten over and over again. So there's definitely something to that, for sure. Now, in, in this book, you take a look at, at parenthood and not parenting, but the what you turn the camera around instead of looking giving parents advice on how to raise their children to make them better children. You take a look at what happens when you throw children in the general vicinity of healthy adults. That's an interesting tack. What made you decide to follow that? Yeah, gosh, what did make me decide to do? Well, um, let's start with this. First of all, there are way too many books about how to raise your kids. I don't care, right? So they're, they're, we can just start with, I had no interest in genre number one. Um, but how I got there, you know, it's strange. I can tell you exactly how I got here. In 2006, New York Magazine asked me to do the first, very first social science story I ever did for them. And over the course of researching it, I read Dan Gilbert's Stumbling on Happiness, which is a lovely book. Um, and way toward the end, for maybe two and a half pages, he mentions that one of the most robust findings in social science is that kids don't improve their parents' happiness at all, that they, if anything, they compromise it. And in 2006, I didn't yet have a baby, and all I wanted in life at that moment was a baby. So when I read that, it, it blew my doors off. I didn't believe it. I thought it was really weird. And I would have written about it right then and there because, you know, your instinct as a journalist is always to follow something that's that counterintuitive, that exceptionally peculiar, and interrogate it. But I thought if I did that, there'd be this big credibility gap between me and my readers because I didn't have a child. So I had my son in 2008, and in 2010, I thought, Huh, like, why, why is this such a robust finding in social science? What is it? Why, why is it that parents' affects are so compromised? I should do something about the ways that kids affect their moms and dads. I should do a book about that, or at least a magazine story, which became a book. So that's sort of how I got there. It was backwards. You know, it wasn't because I became a mother and had some kind of traumatized response to it, or like, you know, I looked at my friends who were having children and thought, well, this is a very interesting thing. A child has just been introduced to their lives and everything's crazy. Now. I was nothing like that. It was actually stumbling across the social science first. Now, one of the things you do in this book, I think that's interesting and very necessary, is give a, a history of past versus present reasons for even having children. And we here in the 21st century think that as it is now, so it has always been. I know. It, it's really um, amazing to crack open a history of childhood and see how different things were. Um, first of all, yes, right. So we moderns think, I think we we sort of take it for granted. We think that what we're supposed to do is wrap our children in bubble wrap and styrofoam peanuts, right? And that they're these precious, ex, you know, extremely sentimental things. Forever um, wear. Yes, yes. And the truth is, um, so, you know, back in Plymouth Colony, there were eight kids per family, you know? And in 1850, there were five or six, depending on which records you're looking at. And so today there are only two. I mean, that's it, just two. So we, uh, just, the, the economics of scarcity would suggest to you that you assign more value to things that are rare, right? If we only have two kids, we are going to be assigning a lot of value to our two children, because that's all we got. And we are also deferring having them. Um, people used to just have kids the minute they could. They got married, they had children, and they kept having children. And the reason they had children was to continue the family line, um, to uphold your obligations to the community, to make sure that you raise productive and decent citizens. You know, that was sort of your goal. Now, we think of children as these kind of major life projects, and they are the capstone to a life. They are something you do after you've done everything else, including get your mortgage and establish yourself professionally. So if you're a college-age person, you're not going to have a kid Odds are, if you're a woman anyway, until you're 30.3 years old. And if you're a man, you'll be 32.3. 
So that's pretty. That's that's a big difference. There are the art projects that we uh, can all aspire to, no matter what our training is. Yeah, right. Although God, doesn't it? Um, I mean, even that language. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the kids just used to be. You know, mm-hmm. they just were. So the very thought that, like, exactly, that we're turning them into projects is already um, shows just sort of the kind of exceptionalism that we, you know, bring to this like quest of ours, right? Or the kind of attitude of exceptionalism that we bring. Yeah. Well, too, when we embark upon the. Uh, adventure of parenthood, we often just are completely clueless as to what's going to happen. I can raise my hand and tell you that is the case for me, at least, and I think this is often the case, that there's a before and there's an after, and there is no semblance between the two. Oh, yeah. And particularly, I mean, imagine, especially because we're having kids so late. I mean, the one thing one can say is that if you wait until you're 30 or 32 years old to have your first kid, you're going to have an exquisite sense of the before and the after. (laughs) Um, Irma Bombeck wrote this great line in the 1980s that I think still totally applies today. She said, I have not been alone in the bathroom since October. And so imagine making it until you're like 30 and not getting the bathroom back. I mean, it's a very big deal. And, you know, the other thing to say about this is we used to walk around in this world with a very dense web of obligations to other people. Um, we had all these ties that bound us and we, we felt all these obligations to the community and to our families and stuff. And over time in the United States, freedom has come to mean not the freedom to do stuff, but freedom from obligation. So we are now free from almost every kind of obligation. We are free from, we don't have to talk to our parents again if we don't want to. We can leave our jobs. We can leave our spouses. We can leave our hometowns. But we can never leave our children. So they are the last permanent binding commitment that our culture asks of us. Um, And that can be a very dizzying shock if you've uh, been leading a freewheeling life if you've had this glorious before where you were, you know, accountable to no one but yourself. Well, too, I think that when you say we can't leave our children, it's not just the culture that prevents us. It's, uh, oh, the humanity <laughs> that right. prevents us, too. I yes. Mean, it's something that you cannot, that psychologically, where as before you might think you see other people's kids and they come and you say, okay, they're cute or they're not cute or whatever they are, and then they go away. They are completely, there's a giant wall between them and you. Right. There's absolutely no wall between you and your own child. No, it's completely true. Right. And I, I tend to avoid in my in my book any conversation about, you know, what might be considered biological yearnings or ties or things like that. But, yeah. Obviously. I mean, it's unimaginable to think about walking out on your own kids, you know. Now, there are, but once you have the the children, there are lots of problems that arise. And and you do a great job of documenting these. Now, you do something I think that's very interesting in this book. You do a lot of um, anecdotal storytelling. And I think you have raised that to a science. I think you do a really good job of that. So talk about uh, the ECFT. Very close. (laughs) You're the first person who has even tried it. ECFE, Early Childhood Family Education Program. This is a boon to you, and it's a boon to this book. And I think it's a boon, I think, to our understanding of how families work in middle America. So talk about discovering that and using that as the uh, test tube in which you are the Petri dish. I'd love to talk about that. Right. And so and thank you for that comment about, you know, the anecdotes. Um, I like case studies. You know, I like Oliver Sacks. I like Dora. You know, I'm sorry. I like Freud. I like any case study I'm a sucker for. So, you know, I, I just that's part of what I was trying to do. Um, was weaving social science around case studies. ECFE is the Early Childhood Family Education Program in Minnesota. It is this astonishing thing that should be replicated in 49 other states, but it's not. It's this statewide program 
90,000 parents pass through it every year in Minnesota, each year, which is an astonishing volume of parents. Um, all you have to do to qualify is have a kid who's going into kindergarten or younger, five and younger, and then you can go, and you pay almost no money to go. Um, they are weekly classes, generally, and the, the way they tend to be designed is you go in, and for half the time, it's like they're two hours, usually. And the first hour is you sit there with your kid and instructors, and you play with your kid with instructors, and there's a group of you in a room. And then the second half, and this is where things get very interesting, you leave your kid with these instructors, and then you go off into a separate room with other parents, and you have coffee and Danish, and you let your hair down, and you talk. So it's this great way to, number one, kind of learn about ways to more constructively interact with your children, and you can address all the questions that you might have about child-rearing while your kid is little and you don't know what you're doing. But on the other hand, it's also a chance for you to get away and to kind of have this escape valve where you can talk to other parents about what's ailing you. So the instructors at ECFE hear everything from new parents. I mean, and they let their hair down. It's like the opposite of Facebook. Facebook is this place, you know, obviously everything is so meticulously curated where you just want to show your, you know, your family in the most flattering possible light using every flattering rosy-hued filter you can. Whereas in these rooms, people are raw. They start to cry because they haven't slept. And, you know, they talk about, like, the arguments that they've had with their spouses. So, you know, you get... I got to see in vivo all of these like intense things that people were dealing with in the earliest kind of years of parenthood. So you could look at what sociologists and psychologists sort of call the, you know, the transition to parenthood phase. So the transition itself is very intense because you're grappling with no longer having autonomy. And also your marriage takes a big hit. It really sustains a blow when your kid is born. And um, figuring out how to navigate that. And there are all sorts of ways that it takes a blow. I mean, there's obviously, you know, your sex life is different and the amount of time that you spend together is different. But also, you know, you are now arguing about chores. It's this very banal thing that needs to be hashed out and rehashed out over and over again for the next umpteen years or 20-odd years um, are domestic duties. And that's a very big deal. So I, I watched a lot of that and I watched a lot of families talking about that. Two in particular in Minnesota. Three, actually. When you were writing about this, how did you uh, capture this? Did you tape it? Did you just scribble in a notebook? I mean, this is this is a, a, a matter of um, science, actually, in this case. So, yeah. So what I did was I did take a tape recorder. I also took my 11-inch screen Mac Air, which, like, fit in my bag, you know, when I would open it up and start taping and typing simultaneously. Um, I showed everything to the families who appeared in it. And if they said ever, I wish I hadn't said that, or do you think you heard me right? Or do you, do you think you transcribed that right? It sounds like any, they could change anything. And I don't know if anybody changed a thing. I mean, maybe one or two people asked for a sentence here or there to be like removed. But anyway, I, I just tried to have all bases covered, you know, so I had tape rolling and I was typing and, you know, I'm a journalist, so I type really quickly at this point. So I would have that going too. Uh, and I learned from a sociologist named Annette LaRue, who wrote Unequal Childhoods. I, I, I learned from her when she wrote that book, she apparently told everybody in her book, she told all of her subjects, think of me as the family dog. I'm really friendly. I'm like kind of old and I just follow you from room to room, but I'm really nice and I mean you no harm. I, I just have affection for you. And I I totally stole that from her. I, I said that to everyone. Like, I'm just going to sit here in the corner. I mean you no harm. I'm going to follow you around very quietly with my laptop, but I, I mean, you know, ignore me or, you know, if you want to start talking to me about something, feel free to engage me. But, you know, I'm just over here in the corner. As we go through this, you do a good job. You have a lot of information in here. There's a lot of stuff that you go through. It's super economically uh, done. It's it's an engaging read. It's you know you have some good narrative tension, and we want to find this out. And you've got it all boiled down well. 
that can't have been easy. So just talk a little bit about the winnowing process. You've got all this data. Were you writing the book as you were doing the experiments, or did you do get all this stuff and then go, oh, my God? Thank you for asking that. I love it when people ask, how do you actually get from A to B? Because it's... Um, the questions that, that writers agonize over the most, and no one's ever talking about it with them while they're doing it. They're alone. It's just them in the open road. So it's really sweet of you to even think of it. I mean, the, the truth is I wrote, I wrote it chapter by chapter. So if I went to Minnesota with the express intention of looking at families for a chapter about how marriage uh, is re, how the bylaws of your marriage are rewritten once a baby is there, I would come home and then write that chapter. And I spent a whole year first doing nothing but reading. All I did was read. I read books. I read, you know, hundreds of academic articles. Um, and and I also spent that first year, I guess, also doing the research now that I think about it. And then I know what it was. So I didn't actually write. I didn't actually go to Minnesota and then come home. I did all the research now that I think about it. So I, I did all of that in one year. And then I put everything into buckets. I, I spent two months sorting through the data, like just putting things into narrower files. And then I wrote it chapter by chapter. That's how I did it. And I would send the chapters out one by one and try and get feedback because you just can't write. Uh, I don't know how people write a book in its entirety and then send it out into the world. That would drive me crazy. I just need people to tell me whether you know I'm at least on the right track. I, I, apparently you were. This book really hit a, hit a, a, a nerve. And well, let's talk a little bit about how what happens to a, a marriage when a child is introduced. You do a great job of like divvying it up and making this understandable for us, which is really important because this is a big subject to wrap our brains around. Thanks. Yeah. So you know, well, the obvious thing, as I said before, is sex, right? But there's not great data out there on that, surprisingly. About the, There's data out there about how often couples have sex and stuff, but not less than you'd think about f sexual frequency once babies come along. And also, it's hard to look at that stuff over the course of a whole marriage um, with kids. So less of that than you'd think. And there's some stuff that shows how much time couples spend together, and of course it's much less. Um, to me, what was the most interesting is how much fighting goes on around chores. Around, I mean, it's very banal, but around the divisions of labor at home, particularly because we are still um, trying to resolve what it means to have women going to work every day. You know, women's workforce participation levels are at not quite um, record highs, but they're high. You know, and four in ten moms are now the primary, if not sole, breadwinners. I think it's 41%, according to Pew. So uh, you would think that given um, how many women are working at least part-time, if not full, that we would have sorted out at home. We would have renegotiated the contract at home about how to divide up the chores. But we haven't. So it becomes this source of enormous tension once a baby comes along. No one can figure this out. And it turns out that women are still doing twice as much child care and twice as much housework. Um, and not only that, but the kind of child care that they do is very, very different. Women tend to wake up three times as much in the middle of the night. Um, and that's in dual earning families. It's even more if they're um, if they're at home. Uh, and I don't have to rehearse the literature of sleep deprivation to tell you that that's hard. Um, women do a lot of deadline-centered work at home. So they're the ones who sit there and sweat getting the dinner on the table by a certain hour and getting the homework checked by a certain hour and getting the baths run by a certain hour. Um, they divide their time and subdivide their time. So that home is not a haven. It's this time of time. It's this place of like time fragmentation and keen discombobulation. So there's a lot of um, uh, kind of stress that goes on. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite studies in there talks about the fact that um, women, you know, are so kind of busy multitasking when they're at home that even when they have free time, their cortisol levels don't go down. You know, when they're at home. Uh, uh, and they're given nothing to do, they don't relax. So men, if they get a f chunk of free time and they're at home, their cortisol levels, their stress hormones go right down. But women, no. What does make a woman's stress hormone go down is watching her husband do housework. 
That makes for cortisol levels go down. <laughs> That's my favorite little tidbit in you know the research thus far. Granted, it was a small study. It needs to be replicated, but it's too good not to repeat. Well, that gives all the men in this uh, our listening audience a good clue. If you're going to do something, make sure your wife is watching. Exactly. <laughs> you're going to get the. I mean, get the. You may get the credit afterwards, but you probably get triple the credit if if they're watching you do it. Exactly. She'll she'll be delighted. That's right. One of the things too that uh, struck me about uh, this book was that you know this idea of isolation. Yeah, I that you know that it seems counterintuitive that as we have children, one of the first things we we start to feel isolated, and that so explain that. I know, and it is counterintuitive. I'm so glad you said that because I think that's right. That the folk wisdom is that everybody comes together around this baby, and that it's babies are kind of a special kind of glue. The truth is. There's a variety of data out there. This is not a one-off finding. This is much more robust. There's a variety of data out there that suggests that people's social connections kind of erode in the first few years of their kids' lives. They come back. But in the first few years, they decline. Um, First of all, I mean, mom and baby kind of form this closed loop, right? And it's very intense, and there's those long, lonely nights where you're breastfeeding and where you're at home, and you're yoked to your baby's rhythms, and your baby's rhythms are not anything resembling normal human circadian rhythms. So, you know, there's that. Um, You've been pulled out of adult circulation. You're not at the office anymore, at least in the beginning. Um, And you're certainly socializing less with your old cohort. Um, Social ties, you see more of your family. You do see more of your family, but you see far less of your friends in the beginning. And, you know, until your kid goes to school, which is like until at least pre-K, if you can afford it, um, and that's, you know, you're not seeing much of grown adults. Um, And also, the pre-K friends that you're seeing or the pre-K adults, the, you know, parents of your kid's cohort, are not necessarily your close friends. So something that Robert Putnam wrote, and he's a guy who examines social capital. He's the Harvard sociologist who wrote Bowling Alone, he um, points out that there's two kinds of people, right? There's machers and there... What's the other one he had? He had machers and... Um, there are makers and... Yeah, machers. Uh, yeah, machers are like, you know, big yeah. big bananas, big, you know, big community pillars. They're people mm-hmm. who are like on community boards and they do all sorts of good works in their towns. And then there are... Oh, I can't believe I can't think of the others, but... Um, what the other word is, but they're hanger-outers, schmoozers. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, And so before you have a kid, you're a schmoozer. You kind of go from cocktail party to cocktail party. You, you, know, you see your friends for brunch. You, know, you might rent. You know, your jobs aren't stable. And then you have a kid, and you're a macher. And you know, you're suddenly like the pillar of your community. You belong to your PTA. You belong to your school board. You belong to your neighborhood watch group. But, you know, the same kind of socializing that you did, it's going to be different. It's not that. It's different. Now, one of the things that I think that you make, uh, points that you make, it's so interesting in terms of interacting with your child, the challenges of that, is that um, young children, their prefrontal cortexes aren't there very much. Right. And so that's where when you're trying to reason with a child, as you read in this excerpt at the beginning of the interview, uh, that's not going to happen. They they are not going to argue with you. And it's a huge mistake we all make, myself included. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I mean, my, my husband, who um, had a very different perspective when our son was born because he already had two kids from a previous marriage. So this was his third kid. So he would just look at me and say, are you actually trying to reason with him? He's three. This is not going to happen. You know, and I would sort of go, oh, yeah. I mean, and as one of the ECFE instructors said to me, no three-year-old has ever looked at their mother and said, gee, mom, you're right. You have a really good point. Um, Here's the thing about three-year-olds, about all toddlers and little, little kids. Um, Yeah, their prefrontal cortexes are are completely unripe. They're totally immature. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that's responsible for um, planning and reasoning and looking into the future. Um, It's impulse control. 
Um, so yeah, you can't reason your way in or out of something with a with a two and a half year old, and yet we're constantly trying. It's a fool's errand. It's just it's a it's a not the right way to do it. And when one of the things you talk about too is boredom, is that uh, when you're a parent, all of a sudden, you, what you think is going to be the most wonderful and exciting time in your life turns into an experience that can be often alternately boring and frustrating. Parents are so ashamed of feeling <laughs> boredom. It's so interesting. I, I mean, mothers were far more interested in talking me, to me about their sex lives than they were about being bored. Um, but when they really get going or if they had enough glasses of wine in them, they would all start <laughs> talking about it. And, you know, and it was made safe by some, God bless them, some of the ECFE instructors were made it safe for them to talk about boredom. One of them actually said that there was only so much My Little Pony that she could play. Here's the thing about boredom. Um, even Dr. Spock talked about boredom. And he didn't talk about it once. He talked about it a lot, actually. Um, and at one point, I think the phrase, the way he said it was, Mother Nature probably never expected the bond between parent and child to be quite so exclusive or something like that. I mean, we used to have a lot of people taking care of our kids. So, you know, when it became this tiny little closed loop of two, you and the baby, it it's all, it's it can be quite tedious. And also, Dr. Spock pointed this out in the 60s that women even then had grown accustomed to being in the workforce and and had responsible jobs and were working around other, you know, adults and Rational discourse was the coin of the realm, and then suddenly they were with little kids where that wasn't true anymore, and that that can be a hard adjustment. I, I like that you find a lot of intimations of what the discoveries that you make in the prose of this book and in the uh, case studies that you have in past authors. And I think this brings back again the importance of the writer in social science uh, and Dr. Spock and Irma Bombeck come back again and again as people who made valuable observations with prose that was engaging and in books that were engaging. Oh, my God. And I think that if they were not engaging or relatable, they wouldn't have had the kind of staying power. I mean, people hang on to those words. And imagine how powerful it must have been for a woman who was of the Betty Friedan kind of generation where she had no options, right? She really, I mean, that's, you know, if you if you were a middle-class woman anyway, you know, you were um, told to stay home. And so there you are and you're home and you might be yearning for something more and you might feel like at a certain point staying home is... Um, not all that you want to do or slightly beneath the educational attainments that you've made. You know, you've got things that you wanted to accomplish, but you're home. And then to read Dr. Spock saying, it's okay to find this a little tedious. I mean, I just imagine that so many women must have wept with relief to be able to read that, you know, just for simply for somebody to say it's okay, that this might be hard. You know, I think that was a really revolutionary thing for him to have said in some ways. And you mentioned the middle class, which is where you made the conscious decision to focus your studies. So tell us a little bit about why, and I'm so glad you did. Yeah, it broke my heart that I couldn't widen it. I'll tell you what happened. I, I, for a while, I thought I'm going to write about all, you know, every kind of parent here. Um, and I read a number of really good, beautiful ethnographies about low-income parents. And, um, but, but, but here's the problem, and it is a problem. Um, you can't separate the problems of poverty from the problems of parenting if you're looking at low-income parents. So if you are a mom who's taking a bus for two and a half hours to go to your her lousy minimum wage job and you know you don't know, you don't know where you're putting your kid, you don't have good child care, you don't have any health care, is that a poverty problem or is that a parenting problem? I mean, it's both, right? Like, you can't separate one from the other. So I just had to make the choice. Like, I mean, I think that that deserves its own book. I think it deserves 50 books, right? So to try and sweep in that, the scope, you know, to, 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 to widen the scope so that it included parents who had um, so much more going on like this seemed almost impossible once I, like, got into it. So I made the choice 
to focus on the middle class. This said, you know, um, I, you don't see a lot of hyper wealthy people in my book. In fact, I don't think you see any hyper wealthy people in my book. Um, I think one kid goes to private school out of all of them. You know, it's like a lot of public school kids and a lot of middle class parents who, who sort of span the gamut. I mean, I guess there's one doctor. There's also, you know, one guy who works at like the uh, Hertz, no, the Avis budget rental car desk at the airport. You know, there's kind of like a big range of professions in there, you know. In New York City, where it's very hard to find like the middle of the middle class, because New York City is increasingly just becoming this study of extremes, um, the, the core group of parents that I found were New York were um, public school teachers in in New York City, and um, and their spouses tended not to be, you know, fancy people. They did, yeah. Uh, one of the things too, I thought, and you brought this up subtly but uh, firmly a couple times in the book, is that. For all the that the psychological help that understanding the situation and understanding the effects that children have and how it's changed over history and how we're in the midst of a current change um, have and how that all plays out on a family level, on the level of what, what the families and the marriages, people involved in the marriage are going to do, there's a big chunk of stuff that the government could do but isn't doing and isn't likely to be doing. And I think this is a really key understanding that I took away from this book, that there's a lot of um, areas of public life where that kind of interest and understanding and support of what the child-bearing and rearing experience is has just been erased. Absolutely. No, and I think parents would be a lot happier if we got much more support from the state. I mean, it's um, cliche to point this out, but in countries with very thick social safety nets, parents are happier. If you're not worried about health care or child care or paid maternity or paternity leave or um, losing your place in, at your job because you have stepped away to take care of your kid for a while, you know, if you're not worried about those things, you're going to be less anxious as a parent. Um, and it's funny. Uh, this sociologist named Robin Simon looked at 28 um, uh, industrialized countries and looked to see developed nations. And it, the United States had by far the biggest disparity between happiness levels. Oh, I'm sorry, in happiness levels between parents and non-parents. Non-parents were much happier than parents here. Whereas um, in the countries with big social safety nets like Scandinavia, you know, all those countries and France. Um, it flipped. Parents were happier than non-parents. I mean, they were considerably happier. Um, I just did an op-ed on Sunday for the for the New York Times, noting that um, the the Republican senators give their uh, the women on their staffs and the men on their staffs very generous paid maternity and paternity leave, like they do it for their own staffs. You know, they, they we're just not willing to do it as a country. I mean that that. I mean, when confronted with what this is, even they know. Marco Rubio gives the same amount of paid leave as as Bernie Sanders, the you know who identified as a socialist in the beginning of his career. You talk too about our understanding of marriage and love, which has undergone a huge shift over the past hundred years, and that's becoming even more so. Yeah. Um, I mean, marriages used to be economic arrangements, which is not very romantic. I mean, you know, at some point, as Jane Austen started writing, we started thinking about marriages as romantic. Um, and during, I guess we had this moment during the 50s where, you know, there was this companionate, there was this idea of marriages where, you know, the guys did one thing and the gals did another. Um, but now most people think of marriage as, this is not my word, this is a sociologist's word, um, a super relationship. Yeah, I it, love that word. David Popeno? Popeno, but I don't Popeno. know how you pronounce I don't know how you pronounce it, actually, and I might be, uh, my, my apologies if I am. Um, and another woman, too, I think. Uh, called, Barbara Defoe Whitehead. Why, yeah, exactly. Thank you. There it is. So they defined it as a super relationship. This thing that's just supposed to be fulfilling, and they're your soulmate, and they carry you through 
the golden years and they are everything and they complete your thoughts. And, you know, that's what people think that they should be marrying, you know, not for kids and not for economic security, but for true love. Um, and it's a lovely idea. I mean, I, I certainly had it in my own head. That was the standard I had when I, you know, for getting married, but you know, it's a tough one. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not how we used to walk around and what we used to think. We had much less sentimental, you know, and less romantic attachments to what marriage was. You also talk about the way that within a marriage, um, particularly when you're parents, each parent has a, a very different idea of me time. Yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, there's this couple in my book named Angie and Clint who people really love and they really relate to. She's a psychiatric nurse. He's the one I was talking about who works at a rental car desk at the airport, or he did. And, I mean, two neurosurgeons can tell me that, like, they feel exactly like these guys. I mean, people whose lives look dramatically different say that they feel very similar to Angie and Clint. So Clint, when he t – and, and what was interesting about these two is that they each had time – Whenever they were taking care of the kids, they were on their own because they worked in shifts. They were shift workers. So when one worked... Super stressful. Very oh. stressful. They were always Criminy single crickets. parents. It was... Oh, yeah. They were all... It was as if they were each a single parent. Um, one would work and the other one would be at home with the kids. And then the other one would leave the kids and go off to work. So watching them individually was so fascinating. You know, Angie, typical of like a lot of women, thought that the only way to be with her kids really was like full saturation immersion. And that was it. It was like the full saturation immersion or bust model of parenting. She had to be on the floor playing with them. She had to have one in her arm at all times. She wasn't even a helicopter. I mean, she was lovely. She she just, you know, they would cry. If she didn't pick her. You know, I mean, like there, was, there were clearly habits that had started from birth with each of them. And she felt guilty because she would run off to work, so she'd want to compensate. She'd be furiously compensating by playing with them a lot, by intensively mothering them. Whereas Clint didn't feel any guilt about the time that he spent at work. And he'd come home, and he'd play with them for a few minutes, and then he wouldn't feel any guilt at all for saying, okay, I'm going to put on an Elmo video, or I'm going to put out these Legos, and you're going to go play with them, and I'm going to start getting dinner ready. And he had no problem like letting them do their own thing. He didn't feel like he was neglecting them. And similarly, sometimes on the weekends, if they happen to overlap, he Clinton would be very quick to say, all right, I need a bike ride. Or, okay, I need to go do something on the computer. Whereas Angie would feel like, I'm home. I should be maximizing on, you know, I should be making the best use of this time and spending quality time with my children. She would never think of herself to just like take, for instance, a bubble bath or something. You know, she couldn't she couldn't. She felt very unentitled to those things. And when you were talking about Angie and Clint, it made me think of what a great job you do as a writer creating characters in this book, characters we can relate to, characters who are dense and we can kind of see this character arc. And this must have been interesting for you as, a, as both a scientist and a writer. Your job is to understand the character arc that they've gone through going becoming parents and then as you talk to them they might get some understanding of what you're talking about they can't help that you're but and you're also at the same time crafting their character arc and prose that's your that's your petri dish thanks yeah you know what's funny i mean it is true that and i think that anyone with any kind of reporter's training can do this if you kind of just land in the middle of a couple's marriage and you start asking them questions, it's always interesting to see what they have never actually had a head-on conversation about, <laughs> that you will be the first one to put it to them. I mean, it was, I, I it, it came out while the two of them were in front of me that Clint was covertly sleep training their kid. Like, he wasn't telling Angie about it. He was just silently doing it because he didn't want to get into a fight with her about it because he knew she hated the idea. He knew that she would balk, and he didn't want to stress her out, and he didn't want to make her um, squirm. So he was very covertly, and I there was some part of me that thought, if I never asked all these questions, 
she just never would have known, you know, like it's because I'm sitting here just being a nosy body doing my job, you know, but also because I'm genuinely interested in like what these two are up to. And because he had such a different sensibility and he had such a different way of like approaching everything about parenting. Um, but it is I, I'm always interested in sort of what couples are learning about each other in real time in front of me because I happen to have asked a question you know, I mean, that's one of the strangest and most, like, pleasant things in a funny way about being a reporter, you know, and then a writer is that you get to ask all these questions that in any other setting would be really insolent, you know? You... <laughs> it would. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah, well, yeah. Do you do you end up taking those questions back to your own marriage? Um, You know, y- yeah. People ask me that. I mean, um, I, I'm in a weird situation because, like I said, my, this is my first kid, but my husband's third, right? So mm. it, he already has in his head sort of ideas about how things happen. And he has more, a lot more experience than I do. On the other hand, you know, I feel like um, I'm a, I mean, the way I do things is different. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to think if there is. I mean, I certainly feel like... Um, there were like things that I learned along the way from both the data I was reading and from watching other couples that I would try to introduce into our own relationship. I mean, like one small thing that I realized um, was uh, if you don't work out, like it, it, all the women's magazines talk about date night, which I think is just such baloney. I just can't stand it. One more person says date night to me, and I'm just going to put my fist through a wall. I can't – I mean, date nights are fine, but then you come home and you're still resenting each other for the exact same stuff that you started out the evening resenting each other for. So for my money, what's much better is working out like kind of who – setting a schedule for yourself as a couple so that um, – you know, like the weekend is coming up and your husband knows that you need two hours to do work and another hour to go to the gym and another hour to like do an errand and another hour to go out and see a friend of yours you haven't seen in a while. Um, That those five hours are budgeted for and that you don't argue about those five hours in real time. Because I saw a lot of couples arguing in real time, like, oh my God, they had 30, they had 90 free minutes. So they would suddenly sit there and get really tense over who got those 90 minutes. And you realized if they'd had this conversation on Tuesday, like it, it would have been much less tense and they wouldn't be arguing in front of the kids. So I realized like this was one thing I could do. Um, and also there's data suggesting this, right? That like couples who have kind of worked out a system and gotten very granular about who does what when, they just fight less about that stuff. So like that I did. Yeah, that we do a little. Now, uh, you you also talk about you have a, a chapter called simple gifts yeah and I think that's a a nice a nice phrase and one of the simple gifts is that we have is our, our Americans who cook and I I think it that makes a big difference and maybe this is just my own personal inclination because I've always loved to cook since I was a little kid but that's great I think it, it makes a big difference to cook your food at home you don't have to sit down and eat together and you shoot you can sip, throw some tv trays in front only in front of the tv whatever works yeah cooking so the simple gifts thing the idea was to sort of look at the specific things that little little kids do for you the, the kind of wonderful things that you get from having little little kids around the house and one of the big kind of reveals to me is that because little kids are tactile, they live through their fingertips and through their senses, they force the grown-ups around them to do the same. You know, we take in our world through touch screens and through, um, we live in our heads, we don't live through our hands, you know, but we are creatures who build and make stuff. And so cooking, you know, everybody, once they have a little kid, they start to bake, right? Because that's <laughs> a thing you do with a little kid, you bake cookies. And also, you, I think people finally realize you know, even if you've gone your whole single life without cooking, you suddenly realize, oh, my God, these chuckleheads, I'm going to have to feed them. They're my kids. <laughs> I got I got to cook. And so you learn. And it's one of these wonderful things that you're forced to actually do what makes you essentially human, which is, you know, work with your hands and work with tools and cook. So I like that. You, you introduce a character who I think is really, really powerful, a Sharon. I mean, she's just an amazing woman. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about meeting her and getting to know her and writing and telling her story because she has a 
an amazing uh, story arc. Oh, my God. Yes. And thank you for framing it like that because she does, doesn't she? She's so she. So it's amazing. She, it's a, it, you, there's a novel right there. There is a novel in that. I know. And I think you that's one of the things. Let me just before you. That's one of the things this book does so well is there's about eight novels oh, worth thanks. of uh, the kind of stuff that you can only you think you can only get out of novels you can get you uh recast it and put it in your petri dish and make it seem like uh you know it's hard data thank that's you. a hard thing to do thank you oh thanks but yeah. sharon's a great example of that oh my god she well uh, and she you know there's with her story you just kind of have to get out of the way or figure out a way to tell it um without interfering too much uh because it tells itself i mean so sharon she was in an ECFE class in Minnesota. I walked in. I sit down at this table of women. It's all women in this particular class. Some are all men. You know, some are mixed. It's This was all women. There were probably 12 people there, I guess. And she's seated next to the instructor. And I think that she is a visiting grandparent because she's 67. And she looks 67. And she looks tired as hell. And she's very quiet. And I just assume the entire time that she is someone's, some other woman's mother there. You know, that she's accompanied her daughter to ECFE and that grandma's hanging around for the afternoon. And only in the last 10 minutes of the class did she say that she was raising her grandson on her own. And that she had lost a couple of kids. She had lost two kids. She actually had three. So one's still alive. But she had lost two. And when she said that, I thought... Oh my God, what? So I asked the ECFE instructor for her contact information, not expecting to hear back from her, wrote her a note, and she wrote back immediately saying, I'd be happy to talk to you. And, she, you know, she, I mean, I wanted to talk to her about so many things. I mean, about what she got out of, um, I mean, here's the thing. It, it, it's so hard to raise a three-year-old as a 67-year-old. It's so hard. So whatever thing she was able to enjoy, whatever the joy was in there, whatever th that was going to be joy distilled. I mean, whatever she felt with her grandson, I, I almost immediately sensed was going to be universal. I mean, because she, you know, this was um, something very exceptional that she was living through and something very hard. So whatever the silver linings were there, we were all going to have those. She also was able to speak to what the meaning was of parenthood because she'd lost two kids. So it took me a long time to become courageous enough to ask her, what was it all for? You know, how did you make sense of all those years of taking care of two children who eventually, you know, would leave you, who would not be here with us anymore? How can you make sense of that? And it's through talking to her that I really came to think about joy and what a full parenthood means and is. Um, she was just, she was like Annie Oakley. She was just res resilient and astonishing. And I think this brings us to, I think, one of the real, the real strength of this book is its ability to convey these kind of uh, opposing notions that all parents find themselves in encompassing. You have two, you find yourself uniting two completely different attitudes, whether you want to or not. Yeah. What you mean, the, the idea that this is one of the most meaningful and joyous things that we'll all do, but also one of the most difficult? Yes. Yeah. And I think Sharon absolutely showed that in, I mean, her story more than anyone's, because nothing is more difficult than keeping track of a three-year-old when you're 67 and you've got arthritic hips and you never sleep. And you're already kind of, and you're already in mourning. I mean, she had lost her daughter, whose kid this was, just a couple of years before. So, um, I mean, it was painful when I first showed up at Sharon's house. It was early in the morning, and she was exhausted. She was groggy. She hadn't slept enough. And she was 67. She was filled with aches and pains. She hadn't slept well. And here's this energetic three-year-old boy in need of starting the day. And you're just looking at her and thinking, how is this going to work? And then I swear by like mid-afternoon, first of all, she kind of plumped like a sponge. She just eventually gained more energy and she was charging through the water park like no one's business with this kid. So she just, at some point during the day, she just kind of became ageless. She, 
it, it That's was, some way it felt to me when I read it. And yeah. I think you do a great job of conveying that in prose. Yeah, thanks. I, well, I, I stole some prose there. I quoted Milan Kundera in um, mm-hmm. one of his, yeah, in Immortality. I mean, because she did sort of like lose her age completely. And she she's um, she was just really, uh, I'm trying to think of, there was something kind of magical and ethereal about her in those moments. But she, um, I mean, and then, and then she'd be very tired and, you know, heavy at the end of the day. But she... But also, like, she just talked to me about how, what it meant to get this chance with this kid. You know, she, she'd say, she had that one line to me where she, I guess her grandson had been born prematurely and they didn't know whether or not he was going to be okay. And he was like two and a half pounds when he was born because his mother was already sick when she was, when she had him. Mm-hmm. And so, um, he, he there's this moment where she just kind of stares at him and he's sitting there very quietly looking at a Richard Scary book and she looks at him and she says god is this kid in charge of his earth or what and you just think that's it like she's just noticing this is a miracle this is a freaking miracle throughout this book you uh talk about a book by uh, I'm going to try to take a shot at this name. Mikhail. Mike Cheeks Sent Me High. Yeah, Mike Chen. <laughs> Cheeks Sent Me High. Cheeks Sent Me High. <laughs> Cheeks Sent Me High. Cheeks Sent Me High. There you go. Flow. Flow. And I, I think that that's uh, that concept com- emerges as a key concept in, in, in your science, your prose science. Yes. So uh, he he is responsible for the con- yes for coming up with the term and the concept of flow. So flow is this state. I mean, I think a lot of us know what it is. It's akin to being in the zone if you're a basketball player. It's um, or if you're an artist, a writer, a painter, whatever. It's when you're no longer thinking. You're just doing. You're in it, and you are at one with the activity that you're doing. And as I was reading Mike Cheeks, <clears throat> Mike Cheeks sent me eyes, uh, work about flow. What I realized is that a lot of it uh, is solitary. The things that get us into a flow state are solitary activities. Like you can be mountain climbing, you can be practicing a musical instrument, you can be working on math problems, and suddenly you reach this kind of, you know, this fugue state where it's just you and it. And then I realized that's a very hard state to achieve if you've got a kid. You know, it's very hard to get to that fugue state. You're not alone. You're with another person. And the way that he describes flow is that it's that sweet spot between being too bored, understimulated, and stressed out, overstimulated. It's when you're right in between. But with children, people are often either very bored or very stressed out. <laughs> they're, they're at one end of the extreme or the other. They're, they're very seldom in the center. Also, you know, in order to have flow, you have to be able to concentrate. You have to get up ahead of steam in order to become involved in something. Kids don't really give you a lot of time to work up ahead of steam on anything. I mean, kids have the attention span of a gnat. So, you know, they're just as you're starting to have a wonderful time with your child, they will melt down. They will decide they want to do something else. They will decide that they've had it, you know. So it's 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 harder to do. And when I asked uh, Cheek Sent Me High whether there was flow in family life, he told me very bluntly that there was very little. He'd measured it, and he hadn't bothered putting it in his book because the answers were not very attractive. We understand that parenthood is a transformative experience, but that... Generally, I think we think of transformation as going in one direction. But what this book told me was that parenthood, that transformation happens in two directions. Yeah. In that you're affecting the change, you're being changed, and and those two things are happening in a way that makes it difficult to distinguish one from the other. Oh, that's interesting. Well, well, you know what that speaks to. The, The definition that George Valiant uses of joy. That joy is this transcendent, profound connection between two people. Or it can be also, I guess, in a religious sense, you know, you can have that relationship with like, you know, the the God that you worship. But, you know, I think parents experience joy as just this deep bond to another. And that that's bidirectional, that's not one way. I mean, what's interesting about parenting is that, you know, actually, um, 
I mean, C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Four Loves, you know, that, that there's this thing called gift love, you know, that we are just giving and giving and giving and gladly giving all this love to this person or these people that we love so much and not expecting it back. The pleasure is in the giving. The pleasure is in the loving, you know, and that that is what gives us a full parenthood is giving that love um, and in having the privilege to love like that and, uh you know, lo- loving these people and knowing that they are going to one day leave us, that they are going to leave our homes, and that we'll never, will never matter as much to them as they will to us, and that's okay. That's just great. That doesn't matter. It's only supposed to go this one way, you know. Um, but uh, that I think is a very profound thing. You know, the kind of joy that we feel. And actually, George Valiant said something about love that, um, or about joy that I. I I always return to, which is he said that it's much harder to tolerate in some ways than sadness. Because if joy is about connection, then in order to tolerate, to fully experience joy, it means that you've got to tolerate the possibility of being, of losing that connection, of being cut off from the thing that you love so much. So I think that's why when parents hear about something like Newtown, they they feel physically ill. I think that the fear of losing that connection to the, per, the people they love the most lurks just beneath the surface of their skin. I think it's right there. Um, and so the, the phrase that Valiant used was um, that joy is grief inside out. I've been speaking with Jennifer Senior. Her new book is All Joy and No Fun. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. This is lovely. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.